Well, this morning we continue our series called For the Love of God. And we've been working through this subject now for several weeks and trying not only to understand the love of God, but personally experience it for ourselves. Again, I don't think that discussing or even teaching or articulating on the love of God is sufficient. It isn't simply a theological category. It isn't uh, a theoretical idea. It isn't even an academic thought. It is more than that. It is something meant for you and I to experience in our relationship with God. From the very beginning, God has always desired a love relationship with His creation. That was His heart's intent from the very beginning. But when man sinned, He made that impossible. And though God continuously tried to reach man through uh, His different endeavors, His different covenants, it wasn't until the coming of Jesus Christ that a covenant was then designed that man could once again be permanently restored within a love relationship with God the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. This morning as we continue looking at 1 John, and I believe that John in his gospel and in his first epistle specifically truly tries to capture this idea that God desires a love relationship with us. He desires that we love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would love our neighbor as ourself. And before Jesus went to the cross, He then sat His disciples down, and then He raised the bar even further. I don't simply want you to love each other as you love yourself. I want you now to love each other as I have, past tense, loved you. The love that I have demonstrated towards you is now the same type of love that I want you now to demonstrate towards one another. He took ourselves out of the equation, that standard, and he raised it further. I want you to love each other the way I have loved you. And I believe that is the point that John then begins to expound upon in 1 John. When we begin to read 1 John, and we understand that John himself never uh, speaks of himself in the Gospel of John by his first name, it's always the one in whom Jesus loved. He desired all of us to see that God's ultimate purpose is to have that love relationship with us, that we would freely love Him and allow Him to freely love us. But as I began to grow in the love of God in my own personal Christian relationship with God, God early on showed me very quickly that God is always the one who initiates in each and every endeavor towards man and leading us by example, he never asks us to do something that he himself hasn't already done towards us. You may have once heard an actor trying to get into character and trying to find that character and become that character, will often ask the question of himself, what is my motivation for acting 
in this particular part. And I discovered that as a Christian, my motivation in the manner in which I conduct myself is completely in response to all that God has already done for me. And when I begin to see that throughout the Bible, from the very beginning after the fall of Adam and Eve, who was it that initiated reconciliation? Was it Adam and Eve? Well, they couldn't do that very well behind the tree that they were hiding behind, right? It was God who went after them to seek them. From that point forward, it was always God trying to draw his people back to himself through the prophets, through the covenants in which he established, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Noah, etc., It was always God trying to reach out to us through Moses. How God would plead with his people in the Old Testament, why won't you come and and love me and I will love you and I will be your God? God always in a position of desiring to forgive those who have sinned against us if we would come to him. But he always initiates the process by coming after you and say, why won't you come to me? But it isn't all all just in the area of coming to him and initiating that relationship. It's also initiating by leading by example. For example, one of the most difficult things for us to do today in our culture seems to be to forgive one another. Forgiving one another is more than just simply acknowledging a forgiveness. It's also allowing for the process of reconciliation. Sometimes that forgiveness is is gained by an individual asking for it, and other times it's a choice that an individual makes to forgive so that they do not become bitter and angry within themselves. But let us understand that the reason that we forgive one another as Christians is because it's Jesus who first forgave us. So what's my motivation for forgiving another person? Well, my motivation for forgiving another person is the fact that Jesus Christ forgave me. And no matter what that other person has done to me, I bet you I can find something that I've done even more horrific towards God that he has forgiven me of. And when I put it in that context, which I believe the early church did, it was much easier for them to forgive one another and allow that forgiveness to permeate throughout their fellowship and allow them to continue in unity with one another, growing in the love for one another that God asked them to have for one another. But see, we don't simply forgive because God asks us to forgive. We forgive because God first forgave us. For example, Paul writes this. In Ephesians 4.32, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Or he again states in Colossians 3.12-13, Put on then as God has as God's chosen ones 
holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul's writing that to a Gentile community who hadn't fully understood the history of of the Lord like the Jewish people had. And he's saying, now, okay, predicate your forgiveness upon the forgiveness that you have received through Jesus Christ. Now, one of the reasons we are so uh, quick to not forgive someone or that we hold on to unforgiveness in our hearts is because we often forget how sinful we are before God and how much he has forgiven us of. And we always look at what someone else has done to us as, oh, that is just the most horrific thing in the entire world, completely, honestly, forgetting what we have done to God. Let us remember that God not only sees every action, every deed, every word that we speak, but every thought that we think. Now, if I were to ask Brian to just select someone here in the church randomly, like, oh, I don't know, maybe him and say, okay, let's see what Jeff thought about for the last week. Put it up on the screen. (laughs) Jeff already doesn't have anyone sitting next to him, and I don't think he would going forward. But you know what? That's true about all of us, isn't it? The hatred that we bury in our hearts, the unforgiveness, the bitterness, we've all been there myself included. One of the greatest challenges that I ever had was forgiving my mom and dad for what I felt was just a complete tragedy and an absolute um, trespass that could never be forgiven. Being adopted into an alcoholic home and then being exposed to all those difficulties that alcoholism brought into my family and the difficulties that arose from it And the pain that that caused over the years growing up as a child, I grew so angry that by the time I was in high school, my heart was just black. And after I became a Christian, it took a long time for me to forgive my parents. My parents had lied to the judges about the adoption process, stating openly in court that they had no alcohol or drug dependency within the family, which was an absolute lie. My dad told me that the night of my rehearsal dinner before I got married. My dad also went on to tell me that my mother had started drinking 10 years before I was even adopted. However, though growing up as a child, my parents told us that it was my adoption that caused my mother to drink initially. And I grew very angry inside. But as I grew as a Christian, I, knew to, I noticed that that bitterness and anger and that resentment was only harming me. And it was keeping me from being the witness that God wanted me to be. Even as a pastor, I would often get up behind this podium over the years and be grieved in my heart because when I spoke on forgiveness, I knew that I was having difficulty even forgiving my own parents. And then I asked God for the grace to forgive them, knowing that my mom and dad would never ask for that forgiveness. 
but I no longer wanted to grow in that bitterness towards them. And it was more important to me to see them in heaven than me being angry at them and bitter towards them in unforgiveness. So I asked the Lord to give me the grace. And you know what the Lord did? He gave me the grace and reminded me of all that he had forgiven me for. And then shortly after that, some years later, my mom came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He was so gracious. Forgive because God has forgiven you. We move this now to love. We love one another because God has loved us. Love is nothing that we can earn from God. It is something that is freely given to us by God. And love is not one-dimensional. It is three-dimensional in the sense that it spans from past, present, and future. The love of God is incomprehensible if it weren't for the examples that we were given throughout the Scripture, specifically the person of Jesus Christ himself. And the heart of God displayed in the simple fact that he gave profoundly his only begotten son to become what the Bible calls a propitiation for our sins. If we can appreciate that this morning, that Jesus Christ has become the propitiation of our sins. And he did this because he loved us He then asks us after uh, an understanding of propitiation not to love through obligation, but to love through appreciation. I am going to ask you this morning to love one another as Christ has loved you because he has loved you and has demonstrated that love by allowing Jesus Christ to become the propitiation for our sins. Today in our culture, we always like to believe that we're better than we actually are, don't we? And we often come to that conclusion because we'll find somebody worse than ourselves and compare ourselves to them. Well, you know, compared to Jeff here, I'm doing pretty good. I've got more hair, you know. But is that a fair comparison? Is Jeff the standard? Of course not. It's easy for me to pick someone out. And of course, I'm just picking on Jeff because he's happened to be here. And I wouldn't want to compare myself to Jeff. But Jeff or myself is not the standard. The person sitting next to you is not the standard. Your husband, your wife, your child, your daughter is not the standard. The standard is Jesus Christ. And every time we compare ourselves to Jesus Christ, we quickly realize how far Short, we have fallen as individuals, where Paul says it this way, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. But as a result of the propitiation that God demonstrated through Jesus Christ, because he loves us, he now asks us to love one another in that same regard, showing for us by example, what this love means. And we begin to this morning, as we start here in verse 9 of chapter 4, if you'll jump there with me. In this, the love of God was manifested among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. 
Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In that culture in which John was writing, it was common thinking to sense that you could earn or merit God's love by some type of favorable action, some kind of duty of piety, of some sort of, you know, uh, self-righteousness. The love of God could be earned. Now, when Paul is writing, he is always contrasting the God of the Bible to the pagan gods of those societies. And if you look at the gods of the Greek mythology, you learn very quickly that these are some of the uh, most horrific, angry, frustrated uh, individual deities that ever were created. They could never be pleased by man. For any length or period of time, they may be pleased for one day, but then simply because of their fickleness, turn against their, uh, their devoted followers and once again hate them and put them through all kinds of problems according to the individual who's following that pagan god. John says here, you know, it's not really a big thing to say that you love God. But it is a much greater thing to understand that from the foundations of the world, God loved you and showed you that love by sending his only begotten son. Once again, the initiator in the uh, restoration of the relationship between a holy God and a fallen individual. What John is elevating here is that your love for God is nothing compared to the love that God has for you and the love in which he demonstrated towards you. Now, when we talk about this word propitiation, it is a theological term that isn't used very often today. In the culture in which it was uh, written at this time, it was often used uh, for a sacrifice that was given unto a deity to appease the deity and to somehow, some way, gain favor from the deity. But John took it and and he kind of uh, brought a Christian understanding to it by describing what Jesus Christ has done for you and I. He says that because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the wrath of God was poured out upon the Son there at that moment on the cross that it grew dark for those several hours that his wrath towards sin was completely and utterly poured upon the Son at that moment, leading to three elements, separation, judgment, and death. And therefore, since Christ endured that, we who place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ have now been spared that wrath that was going to be poured upon us apart from Christ. Now, this is a concept that Christians don't like to discuss any longer, and that is that those who are apart from Jesus Christ are living under the wrath of God. It is a truth that the Bible carries with it distinctly from Genesis to Revelation. The only way to escape that wrath is through Jesus Christ. By Jesus Christ dying in our place as a substitutionary atonement, 
we then can live because of his death and we therefore can uh, have eternal life because of the eternal life that was demonstrated through him when he rose on the third day. And therefore, though we may die, we shall live as the Bible says. But let us understand that one of the most crucial moments of our world's history were those three hours of darkness upon the cross of Christ. One wrote, he stated that propitiation means the turning away of wrath by an offering. In relation to soteriology, that is the theology of salvation, propitiation means placating or satisfying the wrath of God by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God desired to forgive his creation. However, though, in that desire, he is also remains holy. And therefore, he had to uh, forgive us righteously and in some way, somehow, satisfy the consequences of the sins that were committed. And either those sins are going to be settled in our personal death and eternal separation from God, or those sins that we have committed are going to be satisfied through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ leading to eternal life for those who are in him. Those are the only two options on the table. Either you deal with it or allow God to deal with it. And so John is saying that this incredible act of love to allow Jesus Christ to become the propitiation to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf is the greatest demonstration of love that God could have shown his creation. Another one wrote, he says, propitiation means that the death of Christ fully satisfied all the righteous demands of God towards the sinner. Because God is holy and righteous, he cannot overlook sin. Through the work of Jesus Christ, God is fully satisfied that his righteous standard has been met. Through union with Christ, the believer can now be accepted by God and be spared from the wrath of God. How many of you say amen to that? I am so grateful to be spared from the wrath of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And anyone who places their faith and trust in Him can share in that, that assurance can experience the love of God, can understand that God initiated reconciliation through Jesus Christ. And not only does God save you and atone you and pay for past, present, and future sin, but then he also adopts you and allows you to become a son and daughter of the king. It's an incredible aspect of love. And John is saying, because God has done this, on our behalf in the past, for the propitiation for our sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was formulated and architected before the foundations of the world. As Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, from the very foundations of the world, knew that his own death would be required to allow the restoration and reconciliation of fallen creation back to God the Father. And he still went through with it. And now he says, as I have loved you, now you love one another. This brings us to the present. 
John says now that that has happened in the past, the second dimension of this love is found here in the present. Look with me in verse 11, if you will. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John's writing in the sense, in the tense in the Greek is often lost in the English language. I wish there was a way to capture it. There is a way of sensing emotion in the Greek language that we don't have in the English language apart from our uh, punctuation. But he is saying here, now doesn't it only make sense? Isn't it only reasonable that if God loved us in this way, should we not love one another in the exact same way? He's looking to provoke almost a response of, of, of challenge. He's asking us to consider, now, if God has done all of this for you, then why in the world would you not love one another as he has loved you? What reason can you possibly have for not loving your brother and sister in Christ in the light of all that God has done for you? How can you justify your anger or your bitterness or your hatred towards your brother and sister in Christ after all that God has done for you? That's what he's saying in the Greek. And quickly you have to say there's nothing. If you were standing before Jesus Christ, well, I don't know if you could be standing. I think I'd go to my knees very quickly. And he says, after all I have shown you, Eric, is there any reason that you cannot love those brothers and sisters as I have loved you? Well, Lord, you just don't know what they've done to me. Is there any reason that you should not love them as I have loved you? Well, Lord, you just don't get it. They're mean to me. They make fun of my hairline, and they just don't get it. Is there any reason that you should not love as I have loved you? No, there isn't any reason. Every mouth should stop at that point. Thinking of Jesus Christ on the cross under the weight of the wrath of God on my behalf should stop my mouth from moving and saying, Lord, there is no reason that I should not love as you have loved me. That's what he is saying here. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. That is God the Father. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The word perfected there doesn't mean perfect in the same sense of the word in which we know it, but it means mature. The Bible clearly teaches that the love that individuals have for one another is an indication of their maturity. Immature individuals will have a very difficult time. I'm speaking about individuals who are immature in the Lord will have a very difficult time loving each other as Christ has loved them. Corinthians is a perfect example of this. That's why Paul wrote what he did to them. But those who are mature will see the value of love and understand in, its, in their response to all that God has done on their behalf how necessary it actually is. And John's writing here that those who have been mature will understand that though no one has ever seen God, it is possible to display God working amongst us by the love that we have for one another. 
A.W. Tozer once said that if the church would love each other as Christ has loved them, the world would be pounding down the doors of the church to get in. It's time now that we display that we are truly followers of Jesus Christ by the manner in which we love one another. We can hold to a theological creed and say that this doctrinal creed unites us, and that's important to a degree. We can say that attending a specific church uh, aligns us with a specific denomination, and that can create a unity or a consensus among us. However, though, Paul's saying that nothing is going to create greater unity and consensus than love. Nothing. Specifically, the love, of course, that I'm talking about that Christ has loved us with. Allowing ourselves to be willing to lay down our lives for someone else. And therefore, God will be seen in the sense of God working. To the Jewish mind, the dwelling with God was a very important subject. You will see this from the very beginning to the very end of the the Bible. The dwelling with God is very important. They needed to know that even though Jesus was absent from their uh, presence, that God was still with them. And they had that assurance by the Shekinah glory coming upon the temple and becoming upon the tabernacle, or God interacting individually before that in the pre-flood days, etc. But that being said, that the Jewish people, especially the apostles, needed to know and understand that even though Jesus is now ascended to the right hand of 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 God the Father, that he is still present and amongst them. And John's saying that if we love each other in the Spirit as God has loved us, people will know that that's a reality and a truth. He's asking, are we contributing to a a whole picture of God? Are we contributing to a, a clear picture of God? That's a better word. Or is our unwillingness to love one another and to forgive one another, distorting that picture. And therefore the world cannot see God in and of amongst us. Jesus, of course, when he was challenged by the disciples, of course the disciples wanted to see God the Father. Jesus then replied, and he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Again, demonstrating that God was with them in this particular endeavor. One of the greatest Uh, acts of a disciple would be that of reflecting positively upon their teacher. The apostles desired uh, clearly to glorify God in all that they did, to glorify Jesus in all that they did, and the best way that they could do that was by reflecting Christ to a fallen world. That's how they could demonstrate their allegiance, their love for Jesus was by emulating that in which he has done on their behalf towards the world around them. And so we as followers of Jesus Christ need to reflect that in our interaction with one another, in the manner in which we work with one another and interact with one another and so forth. Because then he goes on in verse 13, if you'll look there with me. And by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. 
And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. I truly believe that if I were to bring 10 Christians into a classroom and on the board behind me write the word abide and ask the class to give me the definition of this word, what John meant by using this word biblically, what this word truly entails, I would guarantee you I would get 10 different answers. The word abide is clearly used by John in the Gospel of John and in 1 John to indicate the deepest type of personal, intimate relationship that two individuals can have. That's what God desires between us. God desires that we have such a relationship with Him that we are so close to Him that we cannot help but be changed by Him. If I could give you an illustration. Years ago, we went to a a place where we were watching a blacksmith, uh, you know, make horseshoes and and other iron works of, of some sort. And as he took the poker and he, the poker was cold and he stuck it into the, to the coals and after a while he pulled it out, the poker had taken on the resemblance of the coals for it was glowing red hot. This is the manner in which our relationship with God should affect us. If we are in Christ, if we are abiding with him, walking with him each and every day, we cannot help but be changed by him. We cannot help but to conform into the image of Jesus Christ. And this is why personal devotion and personal prayer lives are so important and necessary. They're not optional to the Christian life. They are a necessity to the Christian life. And John says if we abide with God and we continue with Him and we can have that assurance because He has given us His Spirit, Therefore, it will be known that we have truly seen and testified of the Father has sent the Son, the Savior, into the world. Our lives can demonstrate to a fallen atheistic world that God exists by allowing them to see the work of God in our own personal lives. But then he leads to verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him. You are in that relationship through Christ with the Father, and you are in that abiding relationship. And He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. For God is love, and whoever abides in His love abides in God, and God abides in Him. When this love is demonstrated through your life, the love that God has, it can only be demonstrated because, number one, you're in relationship with Him, and number two, the Spirit of God is within you. You can be confident that you are saved and that you have eternal life in Christ Jesus. There is an assurance, there is a confidence that we can have in this abiding relationship. And John is saying, because God is love, it is impossible for us not to love in the same manner that God does because that's who he is. That's his nature. That's 
who he is in essence. And therefore, if we are in relationship with him in that abiding relationship, then we too will love like him because we've been given the spirit to do so. That's what John's saying here. And then you can be confident that you are in Christ. And as he continues, he says this. By this, verse 17, is love perfected or matured with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is also, are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love or mature love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, of course, this goes to the beginning. John's saying that one who loves this way can be confident in the future. Each and every individual will have to stand before Jesus Christ at one time or another. For the believer, we will stand before what is called the Bema Seat of Christ that is found in 2 Corinthians 5. It is at that place that reward will be given to us openly for those things we've done with the right motive and the right heart for the kingdom of God. And it is that reward that will be given to us in the form of a crown that we will carry with us into eternity for a period of time until Revelation chapter 5, where we take that crown as our last um, moment of adoration and worship and we throw it to Jesus Christ because we say anything that happened through me was all due to you, Lord. And so you get all the glory for e- even the things that you did in and through my life. So don't worry. Some people, you know, have worried that, well, I'm kind of concerned, you know, because I think I'm going to get a Burger King crown when I get up there, and it's going to be embarrassing. And, you know, no. Whatever crown you do have, it will be thrown at the foot of Jesus Christ. Now, to throw a crown at his feet that is enormous, what an act of worship that is for the King of King and the Lord of Lord of all glory. Others, though, who are not in Christ will stand before him in Revelation chapter 20. At this moment, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The book shall be open, and those not found written in the book of life shall be cast apart from God into eternal fire a place called hell that God created for the devil and his angels for all eternity because they have to account for the sins of their own life. They are being judged for all that they have done for the Revelation 20 tells us that books are then open and everything they've ever said, thought, or done is written in those books and will be recited before all. And apart from Jesus Christ, they have no means of salvation, no means of deliverance from that moment. And John's saying that when we love in the way that God has asked us to love, we can be assured that we are not going to stand in that position of judgment before him. That we are going to know that we are saved and that we have eternal life and that heaven is our ultimate destiny where God dwells for all eternity. That's the fear in which he's talking about, the fear of judgment. And perfect love casts out that fear of divine judgment. I don't fear the judgment of God because that judgment has been settled on the person of Jesus Christ. Now in response to what Christ has done for me, now let me love and forgive as Christ has loved and forgiven me. 
That's what John is writing here. That's what moved him. I wish more people were concerned about the judgment of God upon this world because I believe if they would consider it for a moment, they would turn to Jesus Christ very quickly. It is imperative that you and I know that this love will not only cast this fear out, but allow us a confidence to know that God loves me so thoroughly that everything that he does in my life has purpose and meaning. That God is using every circumstance, no matter how difficult that circumstance is, to conform me into the image of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because God loves me too much to leave me the way he found me. And he begins to work in me. And though I'm faced with a difficult circumstance, I can be confident that, you know, as God leads me into these different areas, he's either A, just simply working that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What is that good? Is it material blessing? Is it wealth, health, and prosperity? No. Verse 29, read on, brother. It's to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. But see, God also allows difficulties in my life because he loves me to chasten me, to get my attention, to discipline me, to help me get beyond those areas of my life that are hindering him from doing all that he desires in and through my life. He will chasten me if I'm not dealing with an area of my life that is hidden in a closet before others, but completely open and naked to God. You know, we can come in and we can look a certain way to the people around us, but God knows our hearts. He knows our minds. We're not escaping anything before God, are we? And therefore, as a result, God then often, he says, now I'll give you an opportunity to deal with it. I just think of my dad when I think of this verse. Now, Eric, I'm going to give you a day to clean your room. But if you don't clean your room in one day, I'm going to clean it, and anything that I pick up, you will never, ever, ever see again. So I'd pick up the things I want and let my dad clean up the rest of the room. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) But God often just, he deals with us like that. He goes, now I'm going to give you an opportunity to repent. I'm going to give you an opportunity to get this right. And then if we kind of just kind of slack off and we just kind of don't deal with it, then he goes, okay, you know, I, I promised that I would make you better than the way I found you. And brings in some chastening and he brings in some trials to force us to deal with those things. And he does so because he loves us. So any circumstances that I face, if I have this perfected love in me, I don't fear it. It's just God either conforming me into Jesus or he is chasing me so he can conform me into Jesus. (laughs) And therefore I don't need to fear it. God, I don't know what you're doing, but you do. And I can trust that. But I certainly do not fear the judgment that is coming, for that judgment has been satisfied in the propitiation of the cross of Christ. Verse 19. We love because, why? He first loved us. If you have the King James or New King James Bible, the 
translators inserted the word him. If we first loved, uh, we love him because he first loved us. That is correct, but the reason I think in the newer translations, the word him is not found in there. It's added to give, uh, you know, direction or subject to the love. But I think John had a more broad mind. He goes, we love, it doesn't matter if it's God or others, because he first loved us. And this, therefore, not only tells us that this is reciprocal and it's a response to what God has done for us on our behalf, but it also demonstrates the type of love that we should have for one another. It isn't a man-made, selfish, human type of love. It is the same love that God has had for us, the love that God has showed us, the agape love that God has showed us. We now need to show others, including Him. This interesting point, if I may. We often consider our agape love towards one another as unconditional, sacrificial, uh, selfless love. But here's an interesting thought. When the Bible talks about us loving God, do you know it's using the exact same word? That our love of God should be unconditional, sacrificial, selfless type of love. Too many today are walking with God in a conditional relationship. God, if you do this for me, then I'll do that. God, if you'll give me what I want, then I'll do this for you. God's saying, I loved you unconditionally. Now you love me unconditionally and trust that I know what's best for your life and that I know what I can do in and through you and that I know you better than you know yourself. This winter, I told the youth group, I'll tell you too, I'm going to write a paper on this because I I feel very strongly about this. Too many Americans are convinced that they know what's best for themselves. And if I can convince them that God knows better, Father knows best, (laughs) I think that's what I'll call it. For you who remember that TV show, uh, God knows what's best. And somebody may argue with him, well, no, no, I know what's best for me and I I know myself so well that I therefore can determine what's best for me. You know yourself so well, do you? Well, yes, I do. And you're convinced you know yourself better than anybody else. Absolutely. Okay, well, let me ask you a question. What are you going to do tomorrow? What do you mean, what am I going to do tomorrow? What are you going to do tomorrow? Well, I'm going to get up and go to work. and so. Okay, I know you've got plans for tomorrow, but what are you going to do tomorrow? Well, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. Well, if you don't know what you're going to do tomorrow, isn't it possible that you may do something that you will conclude by saying, I don't know what made me do that. I don't know what made me think that or say that. That's not like me to do that. Well, if you don't even know what you're going to do tomorrow, how can you say that you know yourself better than anyone else? Because God knows exactly what you're going to do tomorrow. And therefore, He knows you better than you know yourself. And once you come to that realization, knowing that God knows you better than you know yourself, He knows you inside and out, He knows you backwards and forwards, And yet he chose to love you from the foundation of the world. I don't deserve that, do you? I didn't earn that, did you? God just showered me with this love. He lavished this love upon me. 
He gave it to me abundantly without condition. And then he demonstrated. It wasn't just in word, but in deed. I gave you my only begotten son for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's incredible when you think about it. And notice how John concludes here. For verse 19 again we read, for we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? I'm so glad that the apostles didn't understand what being politically correct means. If you say that you love God but hate your brother or sister in Christ, you are a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom whom he can see or uh, has seen cannot love God in whom he has not. Just makes sense, right? If you can't love that is tangible next to you, how are you going to love something that's intangible next to you? It's an impossibility, John says. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love God his brother. If I may conclude this morning, I'd like to show with you that from the very beginning, from the very beginning of the Bible, God desired a love relationship with his creation. When Adam and Eve fell, it was God who initiated the return, slaughtering the animals before them that they may see that this is the price and the penalty, that death is the price and penalty for sin and allowing them an avenue, a manner in which they may once again return into that relationship with him. When it began, Adam and Eve had an unfettered relationship with God that was purely based on love. They walked with God in this luscious garden, perfect, experiencing his love, his grace, his peace, and then they sinned against him. And from that moment on, God has been continuously trying to bring his creation back to him. And he says, I'm going to do it by drawing out from this world a people unto myself, that through them they may see me. Unfortunately, they couldn't do it in and of themselves. He drew Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob out, and though they were people that loved God, they still were imperfect, they were imperfect, they were weak in their own nature. They made many, many mistakes. Then it came to delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt through Moses. And we all know how that went. Where it was either God was frustrated with the people and Moses was saying, please, Lord, forgive us. Or Moses was frustrated with the people and says, God, forget it. I give up. And how he pleaded with his people. And he said, build a tabernacle that they may see that I dwell with them. And this is what I desire. I desire a love relationship, but sin must be dealt with in a manner in which allows the individual to come back to me. But his very, very heart towards his people, he says to the Israelites, he says, I did not choose you because you were the biggest nation, the most powerful nation. In fact, you were the littlest, smallest, insignificant nation. But because I loved you, he says, I've drawn you out. And so the glory of God appeared on the tabernacle, but then the people sinned against God and they watched the glory depart until David came and a temple was once again built 
through the hands of his son Solomon and the glory returned. And they saw that God dwelt, but even in those periods through Samuel, God is still pleading with his people. He goes, I love you. I just want you to love me. God, there's moments in time where God's saying, when have I been unfaithful to you? When have I treated you poorly? When have I never fulfilled a promise that I've made towards you? Why won't you just love me? But their hearts were in continuous rebellion against God. And so, once again, the glory departed the temple and they were taken into captivity. And after being released from captivity, they once again rebuilt a temple, not nearly as grand as the one previous, but the, the cloud never returned. And then came a period of time of 400 years of silence. And Herod's temple was built. And this time, the glory returned. But not the Shekinah glory. The glory of the only begotten in his son, Jesus Christ, came into that temple. And he says, I love you. And I'm going to show that love for you by dying that you may have new life once again. Follow me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. From the very beginning, those verses were reiterated by God himself in that temple. And then Christ went to the cross, died, rose again. And Herod's temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So you may be asking, where can the temple be found today? You know where it's found? In us. As Paul says, don't you understand that the Spirit resides in you and now you are the temple of the living God. And it's through our love for one another that the world may know that we are truly of Him and see God and interact and see that love being displayed towards one another because He's given us His Spirit to do so knowing that we could not do it in and of ourselves and that we fail often. Please understand, I am speaking from experience. I am not perfect in this endeavor. I often have to take my heart before God and ask Him again and again to forgive me and to help me love the way Christ has loved me. Because what we're all works in progress, aren't we? But now the people should be seeing the love of God through us. As Paul wrote, he stated to the Corinthian church, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And John wrote it this way, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God so that we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. For God is love, he states. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Oh, how wonderful it is when we respond to God, not out of obligation, but out of appreciation. For Jesus Christ showed us his love by dying on our behalf that we may have eternal life through him.